The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Our reading this morning is Colossians 2, 16 through 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These are the words of the Lord. Well, there we go. It is good to be in this place this morning. And uh, one thing I'll add is if you are visiting with us, please fill out the bottom portion of your bulletin. Um, we just want to know who you are, that we can keep up with you and keep you informed of what's going on in the life of the church. Uh, so please uh, be sure to fill that out. And um, yeah, and also I am really excited about this afternoon as well for uh, Terrence to be ordained. Uh, Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to, uh, to remember his ordination, to remember when the elders set him apart and laid their hands on him. This is a, a time when Terrence, many years from now, when he is feeling uh, insecure, when he's fe feeling overwhelmed, this will be a time that he can go back and maybe even one of us or maybe many of us can remind him, Terrence, remember. Remember that time when the elders set you apart, laid their hands on you for Christian ministry. Uh, so this is so important. Um, it's not just a ceremony. It's not just um, a service. It's a time where, in obedience to God's Word, um, we set apart a young man that has pre is prepared for ministry and now is being sent out. So, uh, so please be here this afternoon. It, it, um, it'll be a good time. Before we go to God's Word, let's pray together as we dive into a whole issue of unity in God's church. Oh God, how we need you. The devil is busy. We are not only targets, but we are willing participants in the disunity of your body. As we receive the judgments of others, O oh God, as we allow the judgments of others to rule our hearts and our minds, to define who we are in direct opposition to who you tell us we are in Christ Jesus, we deflect, we create our own cases and our own judgments, we put on our own trials, we come to our own conclusions acting as judge and jury and we discount each other and we cast each other aside. We do it because of our racial differences. We do it because of our ethnic differences. We do it because of our differences of taste, and personal convictions, our religious practices. God, we don't need much ammunition to do it. And so we beg that you would come by your spirit and you would make us different. Oh God, it makes your heart glad when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity as brothers and sisters. And it makes your heart sad when your brothers and sisters, your children, act like enemies of one another. 
But, oh, God, we need you to do surgery. (laughs) We don't need a little tweak. We don't need a little encouragement. We don't need a little rebuke. We need the power of your spirit working through your word to get deep in our hearts to change the operational principles that are there, alive, and active. So, God, that's how much I need you this morning. That's how much we need you operate. May we go beyond virtual Christianity. Do a mighty work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, I was preaching at um, a church in Palm Springs, California that Ricky Jenkins, I don't know if you remember Ricky, he was at Fellowship Memphis for many years and went and got his doctorate and came back and then took a call out in California. It's a beautiful place. I uh, had a great time. I felt like God really blessed my time out there. It was good to reconnect with, with Ricky and April and uh, their three children. But on the ride back, on the flight back from uh, Palm Springs to Dallas, as I was getting on the airplane, I, I noticed this woman kind of hurrying in front of me to get, to, just to get, you know, in line and to get her seat. And I know, noted that she had a long skirt and um, long hair and had a backpack on with a yoga mat. And, and I just kind of noted it. And, you know, a lot of people on a plane, we're all filing in, we get there. Well, this is the woman that I would sit by on the airplane. And as I sit down, I make a little small talk. She's not, I find out, from uh, Palm Springs. She's visiting her daughter. She's from Florida. And, and, and that was about the end of our conversation. But that was not the end of our relationship. Because I secretly... Uh, you know, in a very stealth manner, was studying her the whole ride. And, and I was making judgments, and I was making judgments about what I thought her judgments were on me. And uh, she pulled out first what looked like a yoga manual, and she pulled out her little satchel of, I don't know how many, 355 different color markers, and started marking her manual with all the, you know, this elaborate uh, deal. And I'm kind of looking at her thinking, oh, she's a little OCD, all right. Um, and then she pulls out her day timer, she finished her lesson, wrote down takeaway notes, and, and then pulled out her day timer. And I know y'all are thinking, I will never, I hope I never have to sit on an airplane with, that, with Richard, but, um, and, and she pulls out her day timer and she gets everything, you know, lined out, I guess for the next week or month or whatever, and again, using all these different color pens, and, uh, and then she pulls out her book called The Happiness Effect. And she's reading that book on how to be happy, and and I'm making all these judgments. And as I'm doing this, as I'm thinking, man, okay, obviously she's a health nut. Uh, In my day, you know, kind of granola is a word, not used to judge, but describe um, someone like this. And, you know, she's into the earth. She's into, you know, organic. She's into, you know, she's into order, obviously. And, well, as I'm thinking all this while working on my sermon, um, I noticed that the stewardess is coming up the aisle. And, you know, I'm kind of getting ready. All right, I got to make a choice. What do I want? Well, what I want is a Diet Coke. 
But the first thing that comes to my mind is, what is she going to think of me if I order a Diet Coke? Because I'm sure some health manual says it has high-octane, unleaded or leaded fuel in the Diet Coke, and it's going to kill me, and I'm just like the worst human being on the planet. So I give in to that judgment that she's probably not even given me, but I'm assuming she's given me, and I order water, thinking, yeah, thinking she is going to be so... Thinking, of course, she's going to order water, but she doesn't order anything. And my mind goes from, oh, she's going to think me so righteous, to, oh, I bet she doesn't drink water poured out of plastic, uh, you know, bottles, because that plastic bottle, and now, unbelievable, unbelievable. And Paul's words are so appropriate. Let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one pass... Don't receive the judgment of other people. Or don't receive the judgment that you assume other people are placing on you. You see, we all do it. No matter what your Enneagram number, no matter what your Myers-Briggs or your DISC score, we all are assuming that we are being judged. We're assuming how other people are receiving us, and it is controlling us, and indeed, we are judging each other. That's what's happening in the church in, in Colossae. There are judgments being placed, there are rules being set up, cultural, religious rules being set up, which we'll get into, and it is killing the church. And so what we need to see this morning is that what Paul is really getting at in these two verses is the whole reality that judgment is a serial killer of unity inside the church. Both giving judgment and receiving and owning that judgment and being ruled by that judgment, it's a serial killer, especially in a multi-ethnic church, which Colossae is. And so the first thing that we need to see as we begin to unpack this is that unity must be the priority. We must see that unity is the priority of the gospel and must be our priority too. Unity in the body has to be a priority if we're going to get serious about judging one another and receiving judgments. Paul is writing from prison and he's agonizing not because he is in prison but because there's a heresy being um, taught in the church and being practiced in the church that is pitting Jew against Gentile and Gentile against Jew. He is agonizing over the reality that the community of God's people, the community that should be the taste of heaven, is really a community giving the world a taste of maybe hell. They're no different. They're judging one another. There's self-righteousness. There's arrogance. Just stamped with maybe the words of God. But unity is the whole thrust of the Bible. It's the whole thrust of what God is doing. It was disunity that occurred in the garden. Adam now against Eve. Eve now against Adam. Cain against Abel. Abel against Cain. And it goes on and on and on and on. And then you have Babel. But we see throughout the scriptures that God is uniting the people through the gospel. He tells Abraham, look at the stars. I'm going to bless all the nations through you. 
And we see at Pentecost, when he pours out the Holy Spirit, what happens? There aren't a bazillion different churches. There's one church uh, representing all peoples and languages, all differences. The wall has come down, and they are loving one another. And that's a sign of the Spirit of Christ among his people. The healing of the world, a new community, a radical new community that, that stands as an aroma of the gospel for the world, an aroma, an apologetic of Jesus to the world. That's what Paul is fighting for in Colossae. That's why he's not just a theologian. His theology always has an end, and that end is the glory of Christ in the midst of God's people. It's never just theology and truth for truth and theology's sake. It is truth and theology for the sake of the peace and purity of God's people and his church and the glory of Christ. But what we have to do is we have to unpack this and understand that that is what God is after. And even a hint of unity, even fake and false unity sometimes is, is powerful because it really does image God. I was taken back by this recently when uh, Ellen DeGeneres accepted the invitation of George W. Bush to sit in a skybox at a Dallas Cowboys game with her wife, Portia, and she was judged by her community. And this is her statement. Here's the thing. I'm friends with George Bush. In fact, I'm friends with a lot of people who don't share the same beliefs that I have. We're all different, and I think that we've forgotten that that's okay that we're all different. But just because I don't agree with someone on everything doesn't mean that I'm not going to be friends with them. That had a ripple effect throughout this country. Why? Because it is expected that you judge those who judge you. And yet she is giving a taste of the unifying gospel of Jesus to the world. And I contrast that with the words of a, a well-known preacher in our day, John MacArthur, who was at a Christian conference, and he was asked about his sister, Beth Moore, who was a Bible teacher, and because he disagrees that she should be teaching or preaching the Bible, he began this diatribe against her, de de degrading her publicly, to the, the, the cheers and the laughter of a crowd. And I thought about those two contrasts, and I said, isn't it crazy that Ellen DeGeneres is giving more of an, off, more of an aroma of the gospel than John MacArthur? But why? Because John MacArthur is using the Word of God and the law of God improperly. And Ellen DeGeneres is using that law more properly. And what came to me were the words of Romans 2.14, where Paul says this, For when the Gentiles, who don't even have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not even have the law. You see, truth is truth, and sin is sin, and evil is evil. That's what he's saying. You see, Ellen DeGeneres prioritizes peace and love. Now, is it biblical love? Well, in this case, it's pretty close. 
And we'll, we'll get to a little bit more. I think it'll make sense as we move through. But how in the world did she walk into that skybox in, at the AT&T Stadium in, in Dallas, Texas? The only way she could do that was by operating from the principle that she was not going to be judged she was not going to, by the principle that even though I know I'm going to be judged, I'm not going to be ruled by the judgments of others. And that's what Paul is saying. He doesn't say don't judge. He says don't allow someone, don't receive the judgment that others are placing on you. The Jews were placing judgments on the Gentiles because they didn't observe the, the Jewish traditional holidays, the religious holidays, and they ate pork when it was outlawed, um, you know, in the Old Testament, even though um, God clearly made it legal. They, they were eating things that the Jews just could not get in their heads were legal and good to eat. And if you ate that, therefore, you must be more of a sinner. You must be an outcast. You must not really be in. And that's what was going on in Colossae. But what Paul is saying is brilliant. Namely, it's not merely those that judge us that are to blame for disunity and broken relationships, but we, the ones being judged, have the power to not allow another's judgment to control us. It's not just the troublemakers, it's those of us, and we're all troublemakers at one point or another, but it's, it's those of us who may see ourselves as victims. We can't just say, well, look at them, it's their fault. We can't do that. That's what Paul is saying. Don't let it control you. That's what Paul's saying. Gentiles, you can't say, well, just look at those Jews. They made me sin. No, no one makes you sin. You give in to it. You allow their judgment to become your operating principle. And Paul is saying, stop it. Gentiles, you are not helpless in this. No one makes you hate. No one makes you insecure. No one forces you to conform. You can say no. And this is critical because what Paul is doing subtly is he's showing the Gentiles not to give in to the Jewish convert's judgment, not merely for their own personal freedom, but for the freedom of the Jews. You see, when I was on that airplane, I could not have any kind of relationship with this woman. I, I, I mean, maybe the only way that we can have a relationship, assuming all of my judgments were true, which I'm sure they were not, um, and all of my conclusions were true, and I'm sure that they were not, you see, I can't be myself when I'm living under the expectations of her perceived judgment of me. I'm trying to fit in, oh, I'll take water, not Diet Coke. What if the best thing for her, what if real freedom for her would be for someone to sit down by her and say, okay, it has unleaded gas in it, but I'm going to drink it because I want to drink it. And maybe that would free her for the rest of the day. You see, that's how community works. It's not uniformity. It's not conformity. It's our differences, lived out, fleshed out, that brings real health. You see, God uses us in each other's lives. He has changed me through a completely different human being, my wife. 
He has changed me for my own good. If she tried to the degree she tries to conform to me, to the degree she tries to just please me and keep the peace, that does me no good. And it's the same way in the church. We can't, it's not conformity, but it's the reality of being who God has called us to be that our sins are exposed, that our habits, unhealthy habits are exposed, that we learn new things, that we become much more glorious as a church than a church where the rules are on the wall and you better follow it or you're out. March in line or you're done. Friends, that's just not the gospel. This is critical that we get after this. We have to prioritize unity. It is our, we have to take ownership for unity. Jesus prays for it in his high priestly prayer in John 17. I don't ask for these only, Father, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I, I mean, that they may all be one. This is what Jesus prayed. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Uh, uh, Romans chapter 15, 5 through 7, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Ephesians 2, 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one. He's talking to Jew and Gentile, made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He is his whole, the whole thrust of his atoning work on the cross was to kill the hostility that we might be one body. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, church. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I mean, can he say it any more clearly? I love Paul. He's just like, he's just not embarrassed to just keep saying the same thing. Unity, 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 unity. We're to be one. Unity, a community of love, is what we were made for. It's the life of heaven. It's the life of the kingdom. And it's to be the life of the church. You see, what God wants to do in the world is show off the sexy legs of his bride. <laughs> I did not plan to say that. <laughs> Maybe I didn't get enough sleep this week. I've always wanted to say that. And I just did. There you go. You know why? Because I really do believe that's the heart of God. He wants to show off his church. He wants to show off his bride. He wants to say, look, look, 
Look at how they love each other. Look at how they lay their lives down for one another. Look at how all the, the, the petty stuff that goes on in the world is not going on in, in, in my bride. That's the heart of our God. That's why we have to take it seriously. And then secondly, we can't just prioritize it, but we've got to understand that unity demands that we reject being controlled by the judgment of others. Oh, dear friends, I saw this week, man, I learned a lot this week by a TED Talk that I watched um, by Glennon Doyle Melton. Glennon Doyle Melton. Her TED Talk is entitled Lessons from the Mental Hospital. So insightful, so insightful. She, she gives her life story, and she talks about um, her addictions. Um, when she was eight years old, she, you know, went to school, was thrust into the school setting, and she immediately felt ugly. She said she felt oily and pudgy. I don't know, maybe somebody can relate to that. Um, and, and she said she just felt like everybody else around her had it together, but she didn't. And so at eight years old, she ran to food for the first time and overate, and then went to the bathroom and purged. And she said, from every day from that point for 18 years going forward, she, she practiced this. She was bulimic for 18 years. 18 years. Uh, she said um, that, that as an addict, um, what most people don't understand is that addicts don't start out liars and professional hiders and cover-up artists. But they feel, and they feel intensely. And, and yet, she said, what I learned at an early age is that nobody really wants to hear what you feel. She said, I would express my feelings. I would, I would say what I felt, and I was just told to shut up and to get over it. She learned at an early age that when someone asks you, how are you doing, what they want to hear is, I am fine. So an addict will create their own tiny, controllable, predictable world so they don't have to deal with the outside world. She said that she would eat when she felt bad about herself. She would um, purge, and then she would pass out on the bathroom floor unable to feel those feelings anymore. And that was her relief, and that was her addiction. But when she was 18, uh, she told a school counselor what was going on, and she was immediately admitted into what she calls a mental hospital. And um, she said there she found real community, because in high school, um, you learn quickly that you know, that, that you have to put on a, a, a tough exterior even though you're inside, inside you are dying. You're, you're supposed to put on a, a, a you know, a, a strong exterior when you are falling apart on the inside. Said you had to act confident when you were deeply insecure. You, you have to go to class and learn history and geometry when you really just wanted to know how to have a good friend and keep a good friend. She said acting became normal. But in the mental hospital, all of that was stripped off. They had classes to express what they really felt like. They, they learned how to express their feelings and to get over the fear of someone judging them for what they felt. 
Honesty, true feelings, vulnerability, transparency were the core values. She said the culture inside fostered uh, being brave enough to tell their own story, but kind enough not to tell someone else's stories. And she said also nobody could be left out. Everyone was worthy just because they existed. In there, she said, others were brave enough to take off their capes. And then she wrote this, or said this, All I ever needed to know I learned in the mental hospital. In there, people wore their scars on the outside, so you knew what was happening on the inside. People told the truth, so you knew where they stood. And friends, listening to her talk, The only thought that kept coming back to me over and over again was this. Is that not what we're to be as the church? Are we not to be a place where we are to come in and we are to say, I am beaten and torn down. (laughs) I don't know that I can go another day. I I, I fear that I'm going to lose my job or I did lose my job. I fear I'm going to lose my marriage or I did lose my marriage. I I fear my parents are not going to make it and... Is this not the place that we can do that? And we all say, are united? No, it's not, because we've tried. And we've been told to put it in the closet. We've come to the church, and we've tried vulnerability, and it didn't work. Because we were shamed. We were put down. You see, the church can be a place where... Others demands, other people demand that we adopt their capes. It may be their brand theology. It may be their brand practices, worship styles, hymns versus modern music, ancient versus modern, liturgical versus praise, vocal versus quiet, reverent, you know, incense versus videos, (laughs) whatever it is. We all learn that, okay, that's not accepted in this culture called the church. And we hide, and maybe eventually we just give up and go find someplace much more acceptable. And and the danger of church community is the fact that we do bring the whole concept of righteousness into it and sin. You see, when you bring God into a community life, failures aren't just failures, they're sin. And obedience is not just conformity to a company handbook, but it's righteousness. It's these big themes, justification, I'm justified. Our form of worship, our tradition, this is the way to do it, to be accepted by God is what we're really saying. This is how I feel accepted by God, by dressing this way or not that way, by living this way and not that way, by singing this but not singing that. In Colossae, the Jewish converts were judging their Gentile brothers uh, up against their Jewish customs and traditions in regard to what was acceptable to eat or drink. Are you kidding me? That was the issue? Yeah, and we have not grown past it. Same thing is going on today. Can you believe she... They don't, I mean, they don't do this, they don't do that, they do this, they, can you believe? 
See, religious practice, even good religious practice, can become little more than capes to deflect rather than tools to get to the truth and love of Jesus deeper into our hearts and souls. Being a multi-ethnic church can become a cape that we wear with pride, that we exalt above the righteousness of God, justice issues, the, the fighting for justice for our neighbor, good things, biblical things can become the cape that we put on and we judge those who don't measure up, who are not as woke as we, who are not as active and activated as we in the cause. Do you see it? It's so subtle because our hearts are deceitful above all things. We can be doing the right things, but so wrongly and causing destruction in the body. Paul says, reject it. Now, friends, he's not saying don't confront each other. He's not saying there's not a time to confront over sin, and so we all need confrontation at times. He's talking about being ruled by human laws, by expectations that we all place on each other that are more powerful most often than the law of God. He says, get humility. Well, how do we do it? Thirdly, to not be controlled by others' judgments, you must be controlled by the judgment of Jesus. Go with me here. I don't know, this is just not something I think about a lot. It's kind of like describing and preaching on oxygen. You know, I mean, everybody in here is breathing, but probably very few of us know the science of breathing. I, I was like, okay, what is the science of judgment? And here's what I narrowed it down to. To be judged is to be held to a standard and found lacking. That's what we all fear. Because we weren't made to be found lacking. We were made to be rejoiced in. We were made to be loved. We weren't made for rejection. We weren't made for isolation. We weren't made to be, we were made for the God of heaven and earth to stand before us and say, I see all of your flaws. I know all of your sins, not just what you did, but what you're doing and what you're going to be doing tomorrow. And I choose you from all eternity, so much so that I send my son Jesus to live under the law in your place. You don't have to perform for the law. You don't have to perform for my love. Jesus has already given the perfect performance. So now I accept you based on his performance. And then I take all of your sin and I judge my own son. All of those petty judgments and all of those righteous judgments I place on my son and I punish him in your place. So that now by faith, by receiving that, you can stand righteous before me in the finished work of Jesus and you are dearly loved, you are accepted, you are not held to a high standard and then condemned. You are held to a high standard and then judged through the finished work of Jesus and accepted and loved. And that provides a power that no one else, even Ellen, as she rejects the gospel, has. She can give us a foreshadowing of that gospel. But dear friends, we have a power. That's what, that's what the Bible tells us. We have a power. 
And it's a power to not be ruled by the judgments of those around us. Well, you shouldn't look that way. You shouldn't drive that way. You shouldn't act that way. You should lose weight. You should run a marathon. You should change jobs. You should not talk like that. You should not look like that. You ought to be exercising more. You ought to be reading more. You should have more knowledge by now. You should know your Bible a whole lot more than you do right now. You should, you should, you should, you should, you should, you should, you should. No, there's death in that. There's only life in the Lord Jesus Christ who lived and died for me, but he gives me a power. Paul says, therefore, verse 16, therefore, well, what came before this? Listen to the words that came before this. You Gentile believers who are accepting the judgment of the Jews, you've been buried with Christ in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that's, um, that stood against us with its legal demands. Thus, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There is no judgment that should control you, but the judgment that has already taken place in Christ Jesus because you were wrapped up in him. Just as he died, you died. Just as he was raised from the dead, you are raised from the dead. So shake off that guilt, shake off that shame, and shake off the judgment of your neighbor. Don't be ruled by it. And then Paul ends in verse uh, 17 here. These are a shadow. These little laws, these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. I love this imagery. There's my shadow. You can't see it, but I can see it. There's my shadow. What if somebody came up here and they kept talking to my shadow? What if somebody came up here and offered a hamburger to my shadow? What if somebody came up here and, and proposed marriage to my shadow? That's, are you kidding? Here I am. Hey, I'm right here. Do you see it, dear friends? The, the, the law is just a shadow that points to the substance and his name is Jesus. And here's how the judgment of God in Christ frees us. Two ways. First, we are freed not to live under the judgment of others. Friends, whose judgment are you living under? Who do you, whose control have you given yourself to? What have you given the control of your identity to? Is it your diet plan? Is it your exercise plan? There's both pride and despondency in that. Is it your work? Is it your volunteerism? It, what is it? What have you given your identity over to? What do, must you do in order to feel good about you? You see, Jesus at the end, you can feel good about you because Jesus has already done it. He ran the marathon for you. You are qualified for the prize already. And you can receive that and stop living under the judgment and stop living under this self-condemnation and receiving that condemnation. But secondly, we are freed by love, thus free to reject one's judgment without rejecting them. Now, here's, a, here's the message of the world. Don't allow yourselves to be controlled by other people. And it's more of this attitude of you find your worth in yourself. 
Now, we have worth in ourselves, but it's not because of us. It's because of him. And that is a radical change. When you begin to see that you are worth something because the God of heaven and earth has stamped worth on you, he's adopted you through his son, you are worth the very blood of Jesus Christ. When you understand that, it is not hate and revenge and anger and self-dependence that I can walk out from under your judgment of me. It's the love of Christ that has come to me through faith and by grace alone. And when that is the way, when, that is, when the gospel is supreme in my heart, I don't have to say, I reject you and your judgment. You can say, I am not going to be controlled by your judgment, but I'm going to love you. And that brings unity. You see, the church has such a huge opportunity and capacity for oneness because we have a big Jesus who's already settled the judgment issues that we all feel and, and live under. And because of that, because of that, I can fight. This is what Paul was saying. I can fight for my Jewish brother who is judging me and, and wanting me to feel less than and wanting me to conform, I can say, no, I'm not going to stop eating pork. And I'm not going to observe this holiday or this feast just because you want me to. But you know what I am going to do? I'm going to love you. And I'm going to show you the power of the gospel by not allowing your judgment to determine my heart toward you. See, this is the kind of love that God can give us. Love is patient, 1 Corinthians 13, and kind. To who? Your enemies, the one judging you. This is the, the divine nature of God's love in us produced by the gospel. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Do you hear it? Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Dear friends, how do you need to apply this? Get it in your head and heart right now. Is the gospel going to rule our relationships at downtown church, or is our flesh and the judgments of others and our judgments of others. There are two radically different roads that end in radically different places. May we be different, friends, not because of our buildings, not because of our worship styles, not but, but because of Jesus. A big Jesus produces a unified body. Oh, dear friends, may we eagerly work for it. May we eagerly long for it. May we not give up on it for the glory of Christ. Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have come to your enemies. You came to this enemy, and you lived a perfect life in my place. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Thank you that you did not shun me. Thank you that you did not live under my uh, judgments of you before I became yours. Thank you that you denied my judgment that you might give me your heart and yourself. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would receive the forgiveness and love that you have for us, that we might pour it out on one another. 
Oh God, would you heal our relationships? Would you break in and do a mighty work at downtown church? Oh Father, we need you. And we pray that it would become infectious. The unified body would become infectious and an open invitation to others to come and to taste of this Jesus and to understand and to taste his sweetness and his love and his forgiveness and his mercy. A a, a love and forgiveness and mercy that we extend to one another. God, make it so. Write our story in that direction. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.